Welcome along to the Drop the Label podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. Labels are all around us. We use them freely and often without thought. This podcast is an exploration of various labels discussed with various guests from different perspectives. We want to get people thinking about labels in their simplest form so that they adopt those that serve their higher self and drop those labels that hold them back in life. Thank you for listening. Will you drop the label? This podcast is brought to you by RT Fitness Durham and Sunderland, home of Team Carnage and the Barbell Club. We are the North East's premier transformation facility, taking you from absolute beginner to photoshoot ready. You just got to do the work. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at the Barbell Club or RT Fitness Durham and Sunderland or over on our website www.rtfitness.uk. On today's episode, I spoke to the lovely Kane Quillman. An author, Kane has written his memoirs as a method of therapy to share his story with the world in the hope that it might help someone else. We discuss his first book, Dragged Up and Torn Apart, which saw him labelled the terrible twins alongside his brother, who at 17 he was separated from. The two spent their early lives causing trouble, fending for themselves and wishing they lived elsewhere with friends. It's a must read. But these stories are real. They happened and they had a significant impact on the person that Kane is today, which we discuss at length including his fear of death. Hello everyone and welcome to Drop the Label podcast. Today I have author Kane Quillman. Um, Kane, would you like to introduce yourself for me, please? Hi, yes. Um, Kane is the pen name. Kane yep. Quillman is a pen name. Um, and the reason for the pen name is because I wanted to write the memoir, memoir series. Um, it took me about two years, I would say, to write it. And it's on social media now. Uh, website, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Um, and yes, I've been doing this for a good few years now. And yeah, but it is a penny because of the memoir. Right. So you read the book, you'll understand why. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I'm almost finished the second one. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> which which out of the two do you, have you found more interesting? Because they are totally different books, even they are, the same person. Yeah. The first one, the mm-hmm. first one captivated me interest that little bit more, I think. Mm-hmm because visually I could visualise what it was you were talking about. And I don't know whether that's because you're local and sort of I know the, the areas area. that you're talking mm-hmm. about, but even just the description of decor and things like that, it's like, yep, I know exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can sort of see it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, the, the second one, the first one, because where it started, started off is, you know, in a psychologist office, and I had this dilemma whether to, or how to start a book and how to write it, because I could have done it as just, this is what happened. But I really wanted to go back in that time when I was younger and, and tell people about the stories. Because when me and me twin tell people about our stories, people look at us as if we were crazy. But we, we thought that was normal. Mm-hmm. Like burning stuff, pinching stuff. Um, it was the bus. <laughs> the bus so when, you'd the been to the, when, yeah. when you'd been to the pet shop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we, we thought that was fun, but then even thinking about now, like, we shouldn't have been able to buy stuff because mm-hmm. we were kids. I mean, we bought the mouse, and, but also my friend pinched that porno mag and put it in his... Mm-hmm. Even that, we were like, yeah, that's just fun. <laughs> um, and then taking the mouse, and we didn't at the time think we're going to let the mouse loose on the train on the way home. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something we planned. We just thought, we'll have a mouse. We didn't know what we were going to do with it. So we um, yeah, bought the mouse, put it on the, on the it train. The, it was the train, wasn't it? The train, yeah. Um, and we put it down the back of the old woman's neck. Um, and honestly, that was one of the funniest. I can clearly, I can clearly remember the, the plush red sofa, the old woman sitting there, all, <laughs> not knowing what was going on. Um, yeah, I can picture it all. Mm-hmm. But funny enough, when I, when I mentioned it to my twin, I can, I can remember nearly everything. He can't remember a damn thing. Right. Literally nothing. So when he's reading my, my stories, he's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I remember it now. <laughs> but I couldn't have told you that it happened. And that's through the whole, the whole book. Mm-hmm. And, and funny enough, for the second book, he never knew anything about. Right. Because when the first book, I mean, kind of see what happened anyway, it's no surprise, that when we got separated, a 17-year-old, we never spoke about anything because there was no means to do it. We were writing letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and letters to Africa just never even got to them. So when I finished the second book from 17 to about 30, when I'd given the manuscript for him to read, he just 
it was quiet because I never realized what you went through. Mm -hmm. Never realized you struggled, never realized you, you missed me. So it was a shock. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, I never forget the time that you came back home after reading that, came in the house after reading it and gives a big hug. Mm -hmm. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you didn't give us hugs, man. <laughs> and he just, we didn't say anything. And I said, what do you think? And he goes, it's a bit rude, like. <laughs> I said, is it? And he goes, yeah, it's, it's a bit dirty. And I said, well, when I was a teenager, that's, that's what you thought about and that's what you did. But the first one, yeah, um, he, he didn't say much about it, really, funny right. enough. Because I thought when I, I mentioned about having childhood neglect and trauma, he, when I told him about it, I, I would have thought he would have agreed and says, yeah, yeah, I'm having these issues because of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. So I thought, well, even though we've had, both had the same upbringing, how become I'm the one that's bloody suffered trauma? Mm -hmm. And in some way, shape, or form, ended up with a fear of death because of it. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. That's not, not fair. Um, so he, and I was like, I couldn't really understand why I had a fear of death until eventually I went to psychologists. And then he explained it to me, it was about your childhood. And from the first chapter in, in Dragged Up and Torn Apart, that first kind of meeting with Neville, people are like, the people who've commented on it have said, I, I didn't understand how you didn't know that you'd suffered a bad childhood. Yeah. And that's kind of the people who talk to me a lot on social media, like, how can you not know? Mm -hmm. And I remember speaking to the psychologist and he said, any, any child that suffered neglect, abuse or trauma will put their parents on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. They will praise them. No matter what they do, they've done nothing wrong. And that is a trait for any, any child suffering neglect or trauma. They won't say, yeah, I've been abused. Yeah. They, they don't do that. And trauma and, and, and neglect, anything like that, isn't sexual. People immediately associate, is it sexual abuse? Mm -hmm. and no, mine wasn't. It was more to do with just being left to, to run wild. Yeah. And no discipline, no kind of, no love, no support, um, no nothing. Mm -hmm. So we were just left to do what we wanted. And we got like, beaten and stuff for being naughty, but we were naughty because we had no discipline. So it was a bit of a vicious circle. Yeah. And we enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> we enjoyed going mad. I, I remember going off, having a girlfriend, and I was out, it was about one o'clock in the morning. I was only about 11. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was up necking on with this last sit up in, um, in Fulwell, which is a good, from Seaburn Dean. Yeah. Even that's like a 45 minute walk. Yeah. And then she says to me, do you not want to, do you not think to go home? And I was like, what for? You know, I'm enjoying myself here. Yeah. And eventually when I went home, my mother's standing at the door. And I thought, what, what's the matter like? Yeah. And she went, it's one o'clock in the morning. That was in the second book, wasn't it? Um, I'm sure it it's was. It's in one of them, yes. I did not realise you were 11 year old. <laughs> yeah, and I don't put ages all the way through. Yeah. Because, I don't know, I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. It was a choice, because a few people said, you don't want to start off with an age. I said, well, no, I'm happy with just describing what I felt at that time, because no matter what age you are, other kids can feel different at their age. Mm -hmm. Everybody may choose in a different way. But just enjoy the story. You don't want to put too much into it, just enjoy the stories. Yeah. But yeah, that's in there. Yeah, come back and I didn't give a shit. <laughs> I didn't give a shit. Um, yeah, we did some weird stuff. Was there anything in there that shocked you a little bit? Um, I wouldn't say it sort of shocked me. I think throughout when I was reading some of the stories and some of the things that you got up there with your brother, <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know, I suppose I kind of thought, eee, little shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. like the, that actually is really little shits. We were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you'd, I don't know, it seemed to be like one thing after another. After another. I was like, was. Jesus Christ, this is mental. Um, but yeah, I think I've always sort of thought that maybe there was one-off instances of people doing stuff like that, but not on the not repeat. <laughs> repeat offenders. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, I mentioned about labels and stuff. We, we were labeled as a terrible twins. Mm -hmm. We were well known that the neighbors hated us. People across the road hated us. The schools hated us. Our friends liked us because we were idiots. <laughs> and they're like, go and do that. And they were like, yeah, all right then. So he would do anything just for a laugh. And, and I think it's it, a lot of it because we were getting attention. Yeah. So whatever we did, whether it was 
nicking up your nine doors and throwing shit at people's windows. We got attention, <laughs> good or bad, fair enough, and chased and hit for it. But nevertheless, we were getting attention. I think that was a lot of it, why we did it. Mm -hmm. And also when you were being labelled the terrible twins, we felt as if we had to live up to that. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that because <laughs> it's, we, 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 we were labelled it and the whole school knew about us. So we had to do something to prove that we were terrible. Mm -hmm. um, my brother got his willy out. <laughs> we were standing there, it's in one of the books actually. She was standing waiting to see the, the teacher and he's standing behind the last. <laughs> she just put her hand like that and he had his cock out. <laughs> she, she's, she's, ah! uh, it was funny. Um, he, he's hilarious, my brother, he really is funny. But he would do anything for a laugh, mm -hmm. absolutely anything. Uh, but yeah, so we, we felt as if we had to just do something to make people laugh, mm -hmm. no matter what. But did that make a difference to us? Yeah, I would say so. Right. I would say definitely. Emotionally, we, uh, we were the class idiots. And, but you don't realise that what you do when you were young affects you when you're teenage. Because mm -hmm. we were both rebels at 17 year old. But Neil went the other way. So I went into, well, he started pinching stuff out of people's cars and, and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and there's one of the stories about the police. I don't know if it's in the second one. Yeah, I think, my, I can't remember. Um, I think it was from the shop, wasn't it? Was it a VHS? Yeah, yeah, it was like, yeah, and that got one hit in the well. bush. Yeah, and then we, he'd kind of, he, he'd yeah, double back and got it he and took it home. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I didn't realise he was slowly turning into an introvert and I was starting to turn into an extrovert. We kind of went in separate ways. And only did you realise when you started to get work and relationships, did you realise that something wasn't quite right? Mm -hmm. And Neil had the same problem. Um, when he was in South Africa, he, he luckily found somebody who took him in. Um, and I went from relationship to relationship to relationship and then work, I couldn't hold down a job. And I just thought, this is normal. Until, until, he, until somebody sits you down and says, you're not normal in the way that, the way you're, you interpret things, mm -hmm. do you then start to think, why, why, why am I not normal? Why do I do things like that? Yeah. And when the psychologist explained to me the reason why I didn't like hugs, the reason why I disrespected authority and, um, was always kind of felt as if I had a chip on my shoulder, it was because of what we did when we were kids. Right. I didn't know that. That was brand new to me, mm -hmm. but it made a lot of sense. So did he say that it was because of what you'd done as a kid or was that to do with the relationship you had with your mom? Bit of both. Right. I think she didn't help by not caring and we enjoyed doing what we're doing. But I would say, because she didn't like really showing affection. And that wasn't because we were nightmare kids. It doesn't matter how, how bad your kids are, you still hug them. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that is, is what a parent does. We didn't get a lot of hugs or affection. We could totally get out. Mm -hmm. So because you didn't have any affection from your mom, then when somebody did come over for affection, you were like, ooh, what's that? Yeah. You know, I don't feel comfortable with that. Um, and the same with authority when you don't get any discipline from your mum or your parents. You don't respect mm -hmm. people in authority because your mum's still your first authority figure. Yeah. So, and then we, and the same with the police, we kind of were always on the radar for the police. So we laughed at that, we thought, so we didn't, dis we didn't respect the police either. Mm -hmm. So later on when I had a job, when authority or management were telling me to do something, I took it as a personal attack. So I would rebel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that turned me losing numerous jobs because I couldn't handle anybody giving me discipline. Mm -hmm. And that was from childhood. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know this. No. <laughs> when I sat in that psychologist's office, when he said to me, this is be the way you are was shaped by your childhood, I was unaware of that at that time. And I was unaware that my mother didn't give me the best upbringing. Mm -hmm. So then prior to that meeting, put my mum up here. After that meeting, yeah. it was down here. So my morals and suppose and values for what happened in my life, I'm suddenly thinking, well, if I had a better upbringing, mm -hmm. if I was given love and support, 
none of this would have happened. None of the relationships would have failed. I would have held jobs. Mm -hmm. I would have been, I would have made me, well, I wouldn't have went to university because I'm a bit thick, but I would have had a better job. Right. I would have held a job. So then all of a sudden you have to think, hold on a minute, my whole life mm -hmm. could have been completely different. Yeah. So then I had to deal with that. Yeah. I had to deal with that there and then. I thought, okay, so what, what do I do as far as your mum's concerned? I've just realised that she ruined my life, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Thanks, mum. And then he says, you can do one of two things. You can tell her about it, mm -hmm. or you can just take it as is. Mm -hmm. It happened. So I told her. Right. <laughs> I told her. I thought, I'll just test the water. And she denied everything. Yeah. So then I thought, well, there's no point in, in pursuing that. Let's just leave it at that and then accept that's just the way I am. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the way I'm dealing with it. Mm -hmm. I'm okay now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I had to come to terms with my life could have been very different and it was of no fault of my own. That's the bit that annoyed me more than anything else. It wasn't my fault mm -hmm. that I had all these issues. It was kind of put on me because she couldn't be bothered. And that was a bit I found a bit, it, I was annoyed. Yeah. Because I thought, why didn't she love me? I've got a little bear and I adore her. Mm -hmm. And I can't even begin to just say, get lost. Mm -hmm. Go away, I don't want to spend any time with you. Or don't give her a hug. She's the one who hugs me. Like, Come here, you pet, and she runs away. But I kind of not do that. I feel like all I want to do is hug her. And, and I suppose when you've had that childhood, you can, you can go one of two ways, you can do the same. Yeah. Or you can, you can change. Yeah. And it is a choice. And there's a lot of, I suppose, psychology in that it's a, it's a bit of a blueprint. Mm -hmm. Whatever you've had when you've been young, do you follow suit? Or do you change Polar it? opposite. And that fascinates me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like, I'd rather sit down with everybody who's had that option and go, why? Which way did you go and why? I'm thinking about it now. Yeah, mm. it's fascinating. <laughs> it is, isn't it? At the yeah. psychology of it all. Um, I find amazing. And in the way you are, the way you develop. And, and you will also have a lot of crossroads in your life. There's a lot throughout Book 2 where I was in situations where I could have went down a certain way. Mm -hmm. I could have went down the drink, more so than I was. <laughs> I could have went down the drugs because I was in the halfway house with people who were there, who had a life of crime. Yeah. And I kind of just easily joined in. So there was moments I'm sitting on that bed on my own in that guest house thinking, I could go out with him and pinch that car tonight because it's fun. Yeah. Or I could stay in here and go to work in the morning. And it was 50-50. Right. I was like, and that happened a lot. It's one of those where, at that point, when you were sort of at that crossroads, thinking about making that choice, mm -hmm. had you gone and stolen the car, mm -hmm. and then now reflecting back on everything and your childhood and how it's responsible for how you are now, mm -hmm. would you at that point have said it was my choice or do you think you would have still had it as stemmed from your relationship with your mum? It'll take you so far. Yeah. That will, that will, that will take you to the, the end, to the decision. Because without that upbringing from my parents, I would never have had that choice whether I go or not. Yeah. So having a bad upbringing took me to the point where I can make a choice. Mm -hmm. But the choice is completely up to you. Yeah. It is what you want to make of your life whether you want to try and do... I always, I always sat on a night and thinking, I want to, I want to, I want to do better. Mm -hmm. I want a job. I want, I want a relationship. I want, I want to be happy. And I think it was that goddamn dogged determination that made me choose the right path mm -hmm. all the time. Because I was always striving for something that would make me happy. And I think it's ultimately comes back to childhood again where I want to be happy because I was never happy. Mm -hmm. if, well, not in a love sense, happy as in being wrong, yeah. being naughty. But I always wanted to, at some point, I thought, I really want to have what other people have. Yeah. And that was happiness and love and, and a job. I kind of looked at that and think, I want that. Mm -hmm. We went to people's houses when we were kids and we were like, oh, I want this. <laughs> I want that. I want to live here. We wanted to live in people's houses because yeah. we, we didn't have nothing. We weren't, we, we weren't sitting in a corner, you know what I mean? We had, we had things. It was more, we didn't have love and affection. Yeah. But that is crucial, you know, um, toys and stuff you can play with. 
for a short period of time, but you need that love and affection. Mm -hmm. and, and when you went to people's houses and seen them getting love and affection from the parents as well, and they've got the toys. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, there's a number of times where in one of the chapters, I, I asked Harry if I, if I could live with him. Yeah. And yeah, and that was quite pivotal in the book. Mm -hmm. And that kind of showed you, even though I'm having a lot of fun with my twin, that really deep down, there was something fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. And for me to want to live with a, a friend, kind of, I didn't see it, but it, it implied a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that chapter, but he just disappeared after that. Yeah, because yeah. his, his mum said that it wasn't feasible. because yeah, we were trouble. <laughs> but like, yeah. I, I, did the mum like, I did Harry's mum, mm -hmm. like sit you down and talk to you about any of it? No, because it, it's a pair, it's, it, it, parents don't want to interfere with other parents. Yeah. So you would never go out to a friend's house and, and, and say, you're bringing your kid up wrong there. Mm -hmm. You don't do that. Yeah. You just don't. So she was more to do with, you can bring your friends over as much as you want. And when I asked to see if I could live with her, she was kind of very completely correct to not offend me in my life. Because mm -hmm. I might go back and tell my mum, and my mum is a lunatic. Right. <laughs> so go out and punch your head in. <laughs> and she knew that. Mm -hmm. So she was like, oh, no, 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 not yet, pet. You know, but I did ask a few times, mm -hmm. but no, she says, no, no, pet. But you never really explained why. Mm -hmm. She says, no, no, sorry, pet. Yeah. That's about it. But it was, yeah, we, it was, and this happened throughout, everywhere I went, I would latch on to a friend and I'd want to stay with them. Mm -hmm. I'd want to be friends with them and kind of live with them. Yeah. And this happened wherever I went. Um, I think you do, and when I lost my twin, when he went to Africa, I really felt as if I needed somebody to, to be there for us, because he was there for us, even though we, we fought like cat and dogs. He was always there. So I was always looking for like a companion, mm -hmm. a friend. Um, but yeah, so two, I think up to 17, I had one life. And from 17 to 30, I had a completely different life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and the third one, the next book coming out, is, is all about living with a fear of death mm -hmm. that was stemmed because of the childhood. And to explain what it is and where it com comes from, I'll, I'll explain it yeah, best yeah. way I can. When I was young and I was happy, something bad happened. And this happened repeatedly. And whether we was being separated with each other, I got sent to one family, my twin got sent to the other. Um, and then there was times where my twin would be sent to, to stay with my dad and I would be left here. And then my dad had to choose and it was either me or Neil. He always chose Neil, mm -hmm. my favourite. But no matter how happy we were, something bad happened. We were separate or we were hit or, or something. And I thought that was normal. Until later on in life, when I was really happy in life, I thought something bad was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand why, because I had my business was fine, my relationship was fine, my marriage was fine, but I had to be happy for something bad to happen. Right. Because that was happened when I was through my youth. Yeah. And I couldn't understand why all of a sudden I thought I was going to die. And, and I thought, oh, well, it must be because um, I'm, I'm working too hard or, or I have actually got something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. So I'd convince myself that I have actually got something wrong with me and I'm going to die and that would be cancer. Mm -hmm. So I went through living with cancer, even though I didn't have it. Yeah. Every symptom that was wrong with me, whether it be a headache, I had a tumour, whether it be... Um, Go to, the, go to the toilet, have a big shit, and it was piles, and piles would lead to colon cancer. And then I'd go down to the hospital and say, can you check me for cancer? You think, what are we doing here? Yeah. And every, every ailment that I'd see on the television, I would latch it onto myself to verify that I was dying. Right. Every time um, Louise went out for... <laughs> edit. <laughs> <laughs> went out to visit her mum, I thought she would die because that would affect me. So everything in my life, something bad was about to happen and I couldn't understand why. Mm -hmm. So I tried to get rid of it and book three is all about not understanding why. Mm -hmm. Not understanding why I thought I was gonna die or my partner was gonna die or my twin was gonna die and then I was gonna die. And this jumped all, all the time. So whenever I have a fear of death, it's normal to have a fear of death, by the way. Right. It's when that fear of death becomes 
not a normal thinking. Yeah. That is the difference between you have worrying about dying to having a phobia mm -hmm. of dying, when the thought process becomes abnormal. Yeah. So if you're watching the telly and Grey's Anatomy and something on there, if you suddenly think you've got that illness, then that isn't normal. Mm -hmm. You thinking about not being healthy kids and dying early, that's normal. Right. So when I crossed that line to be, this is not normal thinking about dying, that's when I realised I had a bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. So the, the fear of death, I tried to remove myself because I thought it was mentally tough. I've been through a lot. I could do that. So the book three is about how I try to remove it because um, I didn't know where it came from. So I'm like, I'll get rid of this. It's just a thought. I'm going, a phase I'm going through. But I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it at all. So I did self-hypnosis. I did, I went to see hypnotherapists. Right. I uh, went to see a cognitive behavioural therapist, which is mentioned in book one. Mm -hmm. And finally, I went to see the doctor. But when I say finally, I had seven years every day of worrying about dying. Mm -hmm. And eventually, after seven years, I thought, I can't actually beat this. I can't get rid of it. Because I didn't know where it came from, there was no way I was going to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> that was impossible. Only did I sit down with a psychologist, did he say, well, what's wrong with you? And I said, right, I'm worried about dying, worried about my wife dying, worried about my twin dying all the time. And do you know what he said? Tell me about your childhood. I'm like, what's, what, what's wrong with my child? Nothing wrong with my child. We had a great time. Yeah. And that's when I'm thinking, it's got to be something else. Now, book three starts where I had a dream, a really bad dream, where I had a dream I died mm -hmm. in a car accident. And the following day, we went on the same road, in the same car, and the same scenario, scenario played out that I had in a dream the, the night before. And I thought I was going to die. Mm -hmm. And as it happened, I didn't have the car accident, but I felt as if I was about to die. Now, I thought the fear of death came from that. So when a psychologist said to me, what about your childhood? I'm like, my childhood's fine. <laughs> it's from my dream. Right, yeah. I've got to have get it from a dream because it has to come from somewhere and that's all I can think of. And he said, have you suffered any trauma? I said, no, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. I've, no, I've had a great life, but a great childhood. I've got a good job and I'm married. It's nothing to do with what's happened in the past. It has to be to do with this dream. So tell me about my childhood. I went, oh, all right then, <laughs> if you insist, uh, me and me twin had a laugh. What did you just do? Oh, yeah, we, you know, we did this and we burned that. And I told him a few of the stories. And he yeah. oh, it's quite funny, isn't it? I said, yeah, it is, isn't it? Tell us a bit more. So I ended up having to tell him about my childhood. And throughout the stories I was telling him, he was just, yeah, mm -hmm. And I thought he was just enjoying the stories. Right. Because some of them are funny. Yeah. And <laughs> um, at the end of that, he says, right, OK, are you aware that that's not normal? <laughs> And I'm like, well, now I'm telling you the stories, you know, because I haven't told them to anybody, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe they're not quite normal. And he said, that's the reason why you have a fear of death. It's your childhood. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of when the penny dropped and that it probably wasn't from the dream and that it could have been from my childhood because there's a guy in front of me who's a goddamn expert. Now, if he's telling me it's from my childhood, it is from my childhood. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, how's it from my childhood then? How have I got a figure of death now in my 30s when I had a great childhood, although not realising now I haven't? He said, because when you were young, you were happy, and then all of a sudden you're unhappy. I'm like, ah, right. I yeah. get that now. Mm -hmm. And he said, so when you're happy now, your brain wants to be unhappy. And it's associated that with the fear of death. It thinks you're going to die. Mm -hmm. And it will not go. Now, mate, well, ho, ho, hold on a moment. It won't go. He said, no, unless you deal with it a certain way. Mm -hmm. said, right, well, what, what's the fix? Medication? I think, I don't want any tablets, if I can help it. And he says, he said, believe it or not, your brain is so clever. By me telling you it's from your childhood, you're fixed. And I went, I don't think so. <laughs> That's not how it works. You know, I've studied enough about psychology and hypnosis and stuff there. It has to be removed. Mm -hmm. Doesn't it? 
He said, no. He said, once you understand where it came from, i.e. the root cause, your brain will then start to understand why the fear is there. Mm -hmm. Now, once it understands, it can accept it. And as long as it accepts it, it will go. You have to maybe just kind of dismiss the thoughts when they come into your head. Mm -hmm. If you can do that with a little bit of just, you know, the, will, the fear of death will still pop in your head. Has to, doesn't, it won't be like that. But as soon as it pops in your head, try and just dismiss it. Mm -hmm. And I did this for about two or three weeks afterwards. And it was about kind of a month, I would say, of just dismissing these thoughts of death. They just vanished. So seven years of dealing with hell. He said it's from my childhood and a bit of self-help went. And that's why I wrote the book. Because he said to me, the best form of therapy is to write it down. Yeah. Because that helps you get rid of anger and frustration. Depression is frustration turned inwards. Right. So you can write that, get everything out, write it all down. He said, why don't you write a book? I said, I can't write, man. Look, I can't hardly spell. He said, well, do write it down for your own personal benefit. Because when you write stuff down, it will feel like and that will help. So, and, he's, and there's no um, psychology books on twins suffering trauma written from the perspective of one. There's no books on that. Mm -hmm. I said, well, if that isn't a good enough reason to write a book, what is? So I said, I'll do that. So I started to write down my uh, Dragged Up and Torn Apart. And I wrote the first chapter about meeting with Neville. And I showed that to my wife. And she went, who wrote that? I said, I did. She went, bloody hell. It's all right, isn't it? So I said, write some more. Yeah, go on. So then, this then, then I started writing about my stories. And then I'd send them off to a few people that I met on Facebook. Because then I started getting into writing a little bit. I'd join Facebook groups and and kind of do a bit of research. So then I met some people on social media and I'd send them a chat. What do you think of that? It's funny, isn't it? And they go, yeah, it's really good. And it just, and it just went from there. Yeah. And then this eventually turned into me writing all of the, my childhood stories, but bookmarking them with the psychologist discussion at the beginning and then coming back to the psychology at the end. So you'd understand why you needed the help and what was wrong. And then you had the story in the middle is to the childhood and neglect and what we did wrong. In the end, that would be the solution as to what happened and where you got the fear of death from and, and how it could be removed. I had to put that in at the end. Um, so yeah, so that's how it, how it came about. And so I had no intention to write a book before that. Yeah. And all of a sudden I thought, okay, well, this is good fun. But I tell you now, every page I wrote, every single page I wrote in that book, I cried. Right. Every single page. So it gets me upset now, but um, yeah, it's still quite difficult. Yeah. Even though it's down on paper, I can't really read stuff to people. Because right. Because the tease is like, um, <laughs> I have no control. So I'm like, oh my God. Um, yeah, so it's still tough. It's still tough because it happened. Mm -hmm. it, it, everything in that book happened. Um, so yeah, so people ask me to read stuff. I'm like, well, you read it and let me know how it is. But for me to read, I'm bringing it all back again. Yeah. You know, it's still quite, it's, it's not raw, but it's still, it still hurts. So what I've got to try and do when I, I talk, I try and go to pretend it's not me. I've got to try and pretend it's another boy mm -hmm. that went through that because I still, it still happened. You know, it's still tough. Yeah. Um, but the writing the book, I didn't realise at the time how much I needed that. When I cried, I was kind of... Um, it's a little bit tough. When I cried when I was writing it, I, I didn't realise that I'd missed my brother. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of, it was upsetting because he lived so far away. Yeah. That I, I missed him. So <laughs> when we're writing the stories, um, I was like, it was still, it was reliving the good times that we had, even though he wasn't with us. So it was really tough, you know, yeah. it was really tough. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I did it and I cried. I, there's times I remember sitting in, in my office, just sitting with my head in my hands, just crying and snotting everywhere. <laughs> 
And, um, and I just, in, in a way, when I wrote the book, there's a lot of the, the funny things. Uh, you probably read this as well. Like whenever there was something funny or bad, there was something funny. Yeah. And that apparently is my style. I, I do funny with trauma. And not, that hasn't been done because usually when you read a memoir, it is all about depression and beating or, or, or something that is quite bad. Because let's be honest, if you're going to write a memoir, something bad's happened in your life. Yeah, yeah. You don't write a memoir go saying, I had a great life, because <laughs> nobody will read it. Yeah. Usually you've had something bad happen to you that you need to tell the story. So usually memoirs are generally all bad or just something that's happened in your life that's interesting. But when I write the stories, you, to, to, when you have trauma, you try and mask it with humor. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is something I, I learned when the psychologists were explaining things to me. That when you're unhappy, you'll try and make people laugh. Because seeing them laugh makes you feel good. Yeah. So whenever I write, if I'm going to take you down on a bit of a sad path, I want, I want to make you happy again. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll write something a little funny with it mm-hmm. to, to not make you feel so sad. Mm-hmm. So my stories is, you know, like you're up and then you're down, and yes. you're up and then you're down. <laughs> um, and that is something that is quite unique to, to how I write because there's not many stories where it is funny trauma, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You're, you're laughing, you're kind of laughing at how bad it was. Yeah. Yeah, and there's some bits where I say, I know I shouldn't be laughing at that. <laughs> But it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> but it's bad. And I'm like, yeah, so I don't want to take you down the road of just being unhappy. I want you to take you down the road of it, un- appreciating it was bad, but please don't be that depressed. Mm-hmm. I suffered it. You shouldn't have to suffer it. But read it, and then I will no doubt make you, make you laugh. Do you think that's kind of how you lived your childhood? Like, even though you didn't realise that you were lacking sort of your, your mum's maternal sort of side, mm-hmm. and you were sad with that. That's why you were doing all these things, because you and your brother found it hilarious. Yeah, yeah, 100%. We, there's nothing better than laughing. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing better than in watching somebody being an idiot. It makes, it, laughter is medicine. And no matter how much we weren't loved, we would laugh to, to kind of, to replace that. Mm-hmm. Because laughing all the time is what we did. We used to tear our clothes off, jump on the bed naked when all the neighbours are watching. We <laughs> <laughs> were just, just anything for fun mm-hmm. because we weren't happy. Our dad left us. Um, he didn't want us. Um, my sister didn't care because we were just a handful. And we knew that. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, grandparents didn't want us. We were a handful. He had a shop and he kept stock in his house. Didn't want the stories. And we, our, 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 when we said, you're going to see your nan and granny, we were going, what can we pinch? <laughs> it wasn't to go and see my nan and granny for love. It was, what can we pinch so we can sell it at school? Mm-hmm. So we'd pinch the alcohol. So he, he, he had a cupboard full of all of his, his favourite drinks. And we would say, which one will he, will, he, will he not miss? So we'd pinch it. Yeah. Take it to school and get pissed. Because mm-hmm. it, was, it was fun. And we'd get praise for doing it and get attention for doing it. Uh, but we, were, we didn't go there for love and affection from the grandparents, which is what you should do. Yeah. I'd like to think. Oh, definitely. Definitely with grandparents. Yeah, exactly. You, you go for all the cake and the crisps and yeah, the, the yeah. sweets and cuddles. And yeah, the cuddles as well. We, we didn't really get them because we were a handful, you know? Mm-hmm. And we were sent there because your mother was doing whatever. And we were sent there just because... It wasn't to go there to enjoy the time, it was to go there because she was busy. Right. So we were left there um, for however long. But yeah, and this, this, this is, I just find it fascinating mm-hmm. about the, the psychology behind when people are left there and what they do and how they dealt with it. And then realise later on in life that people are moulded by that. So whenever I see anybody who is a bit of a, a wrong'un, yeah, mm-hmm. I never ever look at them and go, you're an asshole. Mm-hmm. Some of them might be like. But the point is that that's probably stemmed from somewhere. Yeah. And it gives you a different outlook in life where if somebody is doing something because of something, you don't know what, where that's come from. Mm-hmm. So I never judge a book by the cover. Whenever I meet people, I give them 100% respect. Yeah. And that kind of is up to them to lose that respect because 
And then people look at me and think, oh, you're really posh. You've had a good upbringing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're privileged. I get all that and I'm like, hmm, no idea. Yeah. And then sometimes I tell people mm -hmm. and they're like, never, ever expected that. Mm -hmm. So that's why I never judge anybody. Yeah. Because you never know. Do you ever, where you're talking about there when you went to your grandparents' house and they didn't really cuddle neither, do you ever look at sort of your, your mum's upbringing from them and sort of not forgive her, but I know you mean, yeah. make allowances for the fact that maybe she didn't get the love mm -hmm. and nurture and that? No, but she did. She did? Mm -hmm. Right, okay. Yeah. She, she, her dad was quite strict with her. Mm -hmm. It would made, make her eat the food on the table. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember once arguing with my mum. And she was, and we, we talked about upbringing, and I said, we didn't have the best. And she was, yes, she, yes, she did, of course. And she said, I was made to eat my food. And I said, at least you got food, ma'am. And that's kind of the difference between her bad upbringing, which she never got, she got disciplined heavily. Yeah. And our upbringing, which we never got love and affection. Mm -hmm. And that was her choice. She got love and affection because I seen it. Yeah. You know, and all through my adult life, I've seen it with her and a man. But we didn't have that, so that was a choice. So I empathise a little bit with the reasons why she did it, but not fully. Mm -hmm. It was her choice to get drunk and, and leave us alone. Yeah. You know, that wasn't forced upon her. So yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and figure a little bit, mm -hmm. but not fully. Right. Because when, when we were talking before about, and I said I was thinking about it, me mum's not a massive, or me mum wasn't a massive hugger, mm -hmm. but me gran wasn't neither. It and, does, it does. And it kind of, me mm. and my gran ended up getting really close and I would always hug my gran. Mm -hmm. And my mum used to always like, look as if to say, she doesn't like cuddles. Mm -hmm. And then when I got with Ross and Ross was introduced to my gran, he went straight in for a cuddle and a kiss on the cheek and my yeah. gran was a bit like, <laughs> <laughs> but that's Ross. Um, and then from then on in, we kind of, my mum and my gran didn't mm. ever then start cuddling, hugging and things but my gran more so, mm -hmm. like quite regularly. Mm -hmm. But then I used to think about me and my mum, like my mum wasn't oh, a massive yeah. hugger. She wasn't a massive cuddly person, bit standoffish sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, she'll hate us if she watches this. I know, and that's what I think as well. Yeah, I think you can forgive them mm -hmm. to an extent, but in, in my personal opinion, now I've got a child, it is a choice. Yeah. You know, it's a choice. If, if I don't want to hug my kid, the kid's done nothing wrong. You know, um, so if I don't want to hook my child, that's my choice. Mm -hmm. And the book will, I'd like to think, make you look at your own values and your own kind of dynamics that you have with your parents. And maybe even think, why haven't I had hugs? Yeah. Is it because they had a bad upbringing? Mm -hmm. And I do find a lot of people do say and, and, and take it upon themselves to look at their own dynamics of their relationships and think, or their own characteristics, or their own traits. Like, oh, is that why I don't like hugs? Yeah. And if your lad likes hugs, as he had a good upbringing, and he's had love in his life, so therefore hugs to him are normal. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, don't, yeah, I know, <laughs> it's I interesting. I think, I uh, mean, Ross, you've gone the other way, I think, haven't you? Not, not having hugs. To, to your a huggy person? Yeah, yeah, especially with the boys now, isn't it? Massively yeah. with the kids. And, and it's like the same, because I didn't get it, but I, I wanted them hugs. Yeah. I wanted it because it made me feel good. Mm -hmm. But it, initially it felt uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, I'm, and you would have a hug and it would only be for a second, you're like, oh, get off this. <laughs> um, but yeah, everybody who's read, or, or who was nice enough to, to give an opinion on it, of all, who've had children who've looked at it and said, I, I have twins and I, I, looked, I loved them even like giving a big hug mm -hmm. when I read the book. And because of the way it's written, it will make you look at your own. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah. yeah. You, you start to think about, because at the end it explains it all. Mm -hmm. you know, it explains why I didn't like hugs. Yeah. Why I was a rebel. Why I didn't like authority. Why I had a fear of death. And if anything that's happened during the book you can relate to, you're then going to also think, hmm, is that why I'm the way I am? And is that why I do what I do? Yeah. 
And I wrote it specifically for that, to say to anybody who's had a fear of death or who doesn't like hugs or whatever, it could be from your childhood. Yeah. Because you, you might not know that. And now you do know that, maybe that helps, yeah. Because when we started this podcast and it was to do with labels and where mm. they come from, the primary thing was a lot of the time the labels are given to you from, from your parents or teachers. Mm -hmm in your childhood or you've got them through school from your friends, mm -hmm. like the terrible twins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that then sort of makes you live your life in a certain way, either to live up to them or to go against them. Mm -hmm. And people were messaging me off the back of the podcast saying, I've been thinking about my labels mm -hmm. and how far back they go. Yeah. So I suppose it's kind of the same in Is a it? sense of, mm -hmm. of thinking back to your childhood and, and whether or not you want to continue down that path. Like, yeah. no one wants to be in a position of pain and think, you know, fear of death and things like that. No one wants to feel bad. No one wants to feel unloved. Mm -hmm. And I think if they can pinpoint the moment Get or the, the occasions, yeah. the root cause, then they can sort of come out of it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's quite a painful process for people. I mean, you've said mm -hmm. yourself, obviously, writing the book, mm -hmm. you were in tears writing it, even yeah. the funny stuff, you were in tears. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's a lot of the problem is people don't necessarily want to go to the root cause because of how painful it is going backwards through it. Yeah, the, the, my wife has had the same problem. She, we, she didn't want kids. Right. She had no intention. And it was just the one drunken night. I said, why not? Tell me the reason why. Is I'm worried about it opens a can of worms by talking about it. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about. People are so worried about going so far back to look at the root cause of the problem that they fear that if they open that problem, the whole, the whole mind is going to kind of go into a bit of a frenzy. They can't so they put it back in the box. It. Yeah, they keep a lid in it. And I, 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 I wasn't expecting to find the root cause of mine, but I had to because the fear was so bad. And this is the same with anxiety, depression, any other mental illness, that you're so worried about getting the root cause that you, you don't want to do it, but you, you're missing that. You might bloody well heal yourself. Mm -hmm. So open the damn thing. Can't get any worse, can it? Yeah. You know what I mean? You could be fixed. So anybody who, and I, I went to, Pete Lee did a, um, I was given a theater and given a microphone, did a talk to all these people. And the main message that was, is that if you've got something wrong with you, for God's sake, ask somebody to talk to somebody, get some help, because this whole stigma with that if you've got something wrong with you, it needs to go. Yeah. Mental illness, uh, mental illness doesn't mean you can't do your job, doesn't mean you can't be a good parent. It means there's something quite wrong with you, or wrong with you in your thought process that can be fixed. Yeah. And you, you might not know where it's coming from. Get, get some help, mm -hmm. because it can be fixed. Mm -hmm. And I think these people are so worried about saying I've got I don't think right, mm -hmm. that the, the donor seemed like not a good person. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the messages I want to put out there. I, I, I battled with it. I, I, I thought if I was to say I'm struggling with the fear of death, that means people would think I couldn't do my job properly. Yeah. I'm very good at my job, still with the fear of death. So that disproved that. But I, I didn't want to tell people I had a fear of death because they might think I couldn't do my job properly, yeah. even though I... I could. Um, so yeah, the, the book was written to say if you have got a, something, a thought process that isn't right, there's no shame in asking for help yeah. because you could get rid of it. I think even to an extent, the fact that you've talked about writing mm -hmm. your story, because mm -hmm. some people don't want to open up verbally to other people. And I think there's a massive push on the whole journaling. Yeah. Um, and writing your thoughts and writing things down to get them out in the open and get them off your chest and out of your head and onto a page because then when you do that, it is therapy. It I is, find it's it therapeutic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, so I, I touched on it when I was messaging you, like mm -hmm. I, um, I went through a phase and I don't know whether it was having me boy or it is, the fact way. that it was completely... Yeah, mm -hmm. or completely changing my role in life. <laughs> um, but my gran obviously died. Mm -hmm. 
um, she had a stroke about a week and a half before I had the burn. Oh, great. And then she ended up in a home. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of dealing with these, all of these traumatic things at once because Megan Ross found her as well, which, oh, and I ended up in, that, you? you can't unsig it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've cried, but it's <laughs> um, But yeah, there was that thought process of it's, mm -hmm. it's so many different things at once. Yeah. And I sat on the plane mm -hmm. coming home from a holiday with Ross mm -hmm. and I wrote about it. Mm -hmm. And you know, I felt better afterwards, you but do? I had, I'd been thinking mm -hmm. like, I don't want to drive my car yeah. in case I crash. Yeah. I don't want Ross to drive the car because mm -hmm. I don't trust him driving anyway. That's <laughs> 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 a whole different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, funnily enough, he yeah. had a dream about crashing the van and he actually did oh with God. me in it. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah. Um, Writing it down, I was sitting crying my eyes out on the plane, mm -hmm. thinking, God, people are going to see us cry. Mm -hmm. But since then, I'm a lot more logical because I was having quite illogical thoughts about it all. Like, yeah. don't drive that way, don't drive this way, don't drive. And it was, I mean, it was primarily driving, but it was other things like, what if I'm not there for Costa? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it all just built up. And like, what's was like, Sarah, like, really, we need to talk about this. and and. Mm -hmm. He was dead helpful, bless him. He was my therapist. Well, that's it. <laughs> but then getting them written down was like a... <sighs> you do, it's like, if you ever got a problem, you tell somebody you feel better. Yeah. And the writing it down is, is that in, in itself. But you're kind of telling yourself mm -hmm. that, you know, this is, not, this is not an illogical thought process. I'm writing it down because I need to tell somebody. And sometimes you're just telling yourself. Yeah. That sounds weird. But what I learned from all of the fears is when you have a child, you really do worry about them as a being. And you, need, you have suddenly responsibility to look after them. Mm -hmm. And what the hell would happen if you weren't there? Yeah. What would happen to that child? So that is a very real mm -hmm. fear of, if something happened to you, what would happen to you? Because that would directly affect your child. Mm -hmm. And a lot of fear of death comes from when you become a new parent. Yeah. Because of that. Mm -hmm. And then that can, Either if you keep it in and keep it inside and don't talk to your Oliver lad there, that's when it starts to eat away. Yeah. And luckily you did write it down. Luckily you got support a partner there and get it out because then it's going to, and, and talking about it and from the therapy that I had unravels it. Mm -hmm. And that is the problem. If you don't talk about it, how the hell are you going to unravel it? Yeah. You, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. It stays up here. So by writing it down is the first step to you saying, okay, then, well, something not quite right up here. Mm -hmm. I need to tell somebody, and maybe they can say, okay, shall we talk about it? Yeah. But it has to start, mm -hmm. you know? But yeah, that's just goes to show you how much you needed that if you cry right now. Oh yeah, big time. Because mm -hmm. I think from where I'm sat and where I try to help people, um, obviously, you know about the gym, you've supported us for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From afar. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I didn't know it was me, so I couldn't, couldn't say it was me. But, like, I'm yeah. But, yeah. Um, I always felt like I had to be this held-together, put-together person who didn't have anything wrong with her, who didn't have any negative thoughts, who was all sunshine and rainbows and positive and mm -hmm. following my own advice. And I, I'm very open about the things that I do wrong from a... a a coaching perspective, like, I don't like training my legs or I, I mm -hmm. don't like my veg. Mm -hmm. I'm quite open on that, but mental state-wise, it was like, how can I sit and talk about my mental health mm -hmm. when I've never said I've had an issue with it and I, st I still feel like a bit of a fraud saying it? Because you haven't talked about it in the past, so you think, mm -hmm. yeah. But how can I help people if I'm in that if I'm not right in the head, do you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, I know that, yeah, I know that. Um, so it took, I think that's why it took so long for us to actually, because there was a few times I said to Ross, like, I'm not right in the head, like, there's something mm -hmm. wrong here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't put my finger on what it was. Pinpointed, yeah. And was it the fear, of, the fear of dying? I think it was the combination of what happened with me gran and mm -hmm. having the boy. I think for me, it wasn't, I didn't have the time to grieve. And I think that just took a hold. So when I was just randomly crying or mm -hmm. thinking about dying and things like that, it was like, where's all this coming from? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at least you pinpointed it 
pretty much where it is. Because you question your own morality when somebody dies. Yeah. Because you think, they've been taken from my life. And then you start to think, well, what if I was taken away from that person's life? Or what if they were taken away mm -hmm. from me? And that then can, it can snowball. But if, if you start talking about it, it, t it tends to not. But as soon as you, you replay, because whenever you're thinking about something in your head, it always goes off and easy. It's like a tree. You have a little thought at the bottom and then it just goes, <laughs> you're like, why, why have I gone that direction mm -hmm. when it was an initial thought? Because your brain does that. Yeah. It just, it just goes off in loads of different, it spirals out of control. So um, that's why you've got to talk to people. Mm -hmm. And nobody will look at you different by saying, I have, a, I have this thought process or this, we say illness, not really illness, it's just a thought process. Mm -hmm. But you're worried about people looking at you. But how many times have people said to you, oh, I'm worried about this, 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 and you went, don't worry about it, it's fine. Yeah. And when I say to people now, I had a fear of death, I don't really worry about what they say, mm -hmm. because it doesn't make any difference. I, 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 I'm, you know, I don't ever judge people through what illness that they've got, so why would they judge me? Yeah. And if somebody is going to judge you, that's probably because they're an ass. That <laughs> 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 yeah, doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, it just means mm -hmm. From there, they put a label on you, it just means that they've got their own demons that they need to try and sort out. Yeah. It certainly doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And mental health, issues of mental health, is something that it should be accepted as part of. No, most people have issues, they just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I think it's 95% of people have mental health issues, they just don't talk about it. Yeah. And that's why people have a lot of anxieties, because they don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And the world is full of anxiety, sadly. Yeah. But I think the more we talk about it, the better. That's what I think anyway. Mm -hmm. and crying's fine. <laughs> <laughs> not when we're crying. Oh, no, definitely not. No. I cry too much sometimes, but... <laughs> it's not, not, not my with that. I think there's, there's people like, oh, my, like the, man, the man who was talking to us before about, I'm a man, I shouldn't cry. Mm -hmm. why, why not? You're a human at the end of the day. If you're upset, you've got emotions, cry. Mm -hmm. I can't understand why you would say to somebody, you know, Man up, or don't cry. And like, hey, look, I've, I've went through, through some dodgy stuff. If I want to bloody well cry, I will. Yeah. I'm not going to not cry because you don't like it. Mm -hmm. That's that's crazy. But yeah, um, if you're upset or emotional and stuff and say it, I think that's pretty important for people to understand that it's totally fine. Mm -hmm. I cry in my job all day, man. People in my job cry next to me all day, and I'm fine. Cry away. It's fine to get upset. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But I think illness and crying go a bit of a hand in hand. Yeah. Cry away. Because <laughs> I was talking to Mel yeah. Melissa about it last week, and we were talking about the whole um, it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. But then me and Ross have had this conversation on repeat about it's mm -hmm. okay to be okay. Mm -hmm. Because whilst you go through these things, and I think it's okay to be okay, but being okay can be crying. Yeah. It can be being upset about yeah. something. It's a perfectly normal part of life. Yeah. But it is, I would say, it's more accepted now. Mm -hmm than it used to be. And I think a lot of people still hold on to those old values that a man does this, a woman does that, you don't cry, da da da. Yeah. And I think that's still slowly, slowly kind of dissipating, slowly going away. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's okay to be upset and worry about things. It's okay to not understand things. It's okay to feel like crap, mm -hmm. you know? And it's okay to be in uh, like a down state of mind. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's okay to not. It's okay to not be okay, and it's okay to be okay. And 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 nobody really should cast any judgment because you never know why. Yeah. Unless somebody tells you your entire life story, they can't possibly cast an opinion on whatever you do. Yeah. Because they can't know. Mm -hmm. And they can't get inside your head. You haven't told. Them. So when somebody gives their opinion on anything that I say and do, I'm like, okay, well, you don't really know. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So, so when people listen to what other people say, hey, look, you do what you do, be yourself. As long as you're genuine yourself, then that's all you really need to worry about. Yeah. If somebody wants to stick a label on you, um, it's like sticking a bit of cheese on your leg. It's just going to fall off, isn't it? <laughs> Nobody stick a label on me. I'm too hairy for labels. <laughs> and then you asked me about labels. I said, I've, got more, I've had more labels than the next in a sale. Yeah. I don't care. No matter what, I've been called fat. Great, because I was really skinny. <laughs> when I was young, I was skinny, like a rake. The people have said, I'm like, I'm posh. I'm like, yeah. It doesn't, I don't, 
it doesn't make any difference because I know who I am. Yeah. If anyone wants to stick a label on me, it's just going to fall off. Yeah. It ain't going to stick. I think that's kind of a, a good finishing point. Mm -hmm. Is it's it's up to you to decide that you're happy with yourself. Mm -hmm. Whether that means you have to write something down and go through a process to figure out where the labels come from to get rid of them mm -hmm. or keep them if you want. Yes, I'm all right. As long as you're happy and genuine in yourself, fuck everyone else. Yeah, never shit what they think. Yeah. 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 That's the tagline. <laughs> fuck yeah. everyone yeah. else. <laughs> <laughs> I am what I am. I am. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a nice way of. If, I say the same thing. As long as you're genuine in yourself and in yourself, it doesn't matter what other people mm -hmm. think. Because you're always going to find somebody that wants to try and put you down because it makes them feel good. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there that will try and do that. Yeah. You know, and I, I get this on social media. Mm -hmm. People try and put me down. Somebody leave me a bad review, that has nothing to do with the book. Just because it makes them feel good. Yeah. Keyboard warriors are the worst ones. Oh, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've met a lot of those. But, yeah, I just ignore them. Good. Good. Well, it's been lovely yeah, talking to you. Cried. I've thoroughly first, enjoyed it. it. That's a, that's a, is that the first time I've cried on one of these? Yeah. It was nearly a one I nearly went. I nearly, I've nearly I've went. over the edge. Yeah. Kane's tip is over the edge. But no, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Much appreciated. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the third book. Yeah, not be long. Hopefully, the, maybe this year. Maybe. Yeah, I hope to get it done. Champion. Good stuff. Thank Great. you. You're welcome.